So Tyler, part of the work that we do as clinical ethicists is to make recommendations to the clinical team. So we get consulted and we you know, do some work around the case and then we say at some point, um, here's what we think you should do. How often do you think that healthcare teams follow the recommendations that we give? Oh, how often do they actually do what we tell them to mm-hmm. do? No, 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 not uh, tell them to do, that we recommend they should do. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, I had somebody ask me why I did, so my obviously my, my training is, I, as a, I have a PhD and I also went to law school. And so I tell people sometimes that I went to, I did my PhD, so doctors have to refer to me as doctor. Mm-hmm. So it puts us on the same same level. And I I went to law school, so they actually do what I tell them to do, <laughs> <laughs> which I don't think any one of those are justifiable <laughs> reasons to go to lots of education. Anyway. Or um, true. Or true. I'm not sure that either of those things is true, but. <laughs> yeah. I don't think that either of them are true. Uh, I think most of the time, a, a good clinical ethics consultation uh, recommendations, I think, I think they're generally followed. Um, Notable exceptions are when there is a difference or a conflict between like what the law requires or what uh, regulation and maybe what risk management folks would be recommending and the ethics advice. And so, for example, here in Michigan, if you don't have somebody named in an advanced directive, Right, so a, a legal document that appoints somebody to make decisions if you're unable to do so, you can you can assign anybody to make decisions for you, whoever you want to. If you don't have that set up and you become unable to make your own decisions, the way that Michigan law operates, and caveat, this is not legal advice, obviously. So, <laughs> but in the state of Michigan, the statutes and the way the cases have played out, you actually have to be, quote, a next of kin in order to to fulfill that role. So if you have a long-term domestic partner, if you have a, a best friend who knows your wishes really well, if you have you know, somebody else in your life who you really trust, they are excluded from making medical decisions for you if you're unable to make your own decisions. And so there are times in which the best person to make the decision ethically is somebody who is kind of legally disempowered from doing so. Mm-hmm. So I think in those situations, the recommendations can be a little bit tricky. But um, I think in most cases, people fall at least um, give serious consideration to the recommendations that we make. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. I think most of the time, they at least try to do the thing that the clinical ethicist recommends. In my experience, if they don't, it's because maybe, like you said, risk management told them to do something else to protect the hospital and that often risk has a legal function and so they listen to the lawyers more than the ethicists or they didn't read the note which nothing more frustrating than doing like days of ethics consultation putting in the note and then the person who is responsible for enacting the thing that you recommended never read the note and did the opposite that's happened to me as well or they just at the end of the day like it got too messy and they had to pivot and we weren't there in the moment to help guide the new decision that needed to be made. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that sometimes the path of least resistance is chosen. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, for really good practical logistic reasons, um, makes a lot of sense. Sometimes following through on what is the most kind of ethically justifiable 
course of action in a in the real world takes a lot of moral courage mm-hmm. and the ability of a you know the requirement of a healthcare provider a physician a nurse to stand up in the face of sometimes system issues or institutional issues or political issues and, and really be brave and that's a lot to ask mm-hmm. yeah so today you're going to bring us a case where you talk about a, a really sticky case where there really wasn't a very firm ethics decision that either was made or was carried out by the team. And I think what ensues is sort of what happens when nobody is willing to take a really firm stand on what the right thing to do is. And instead, they kind of are wishy-washy and vague about what they're doing, and the worst possible outcome happens. That's exactly right. All right. We'll get ready for a case brought to you by our very own Dr. Tyler Gibb. Welcome to Bioethics for the People, where we discuss bioethics and complex questions in medicine, health, and society. I'm joined by my co-host, as always, the birther of babies, the birther of books, the baler bear, the bell of bioethics, Dr. Devin Stahl. And I am joined by my co-host, clinical ethicist extraordinaire, sometimes lawyer and all-around boss at Western Michigan, Tyler Gibb. Tyler, this is in some ways a special episode because it's all about you. It's my favorite kind of episode. <laughs> <laughs> all about me. Um, no, this is exciting. You're going to actually interview me. I am. And I have no idea what the case is that you've brought. So it's a surprise to me and hopefully not a surprise to you. Uh, it's not a surprise to me, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've thought about this a lot. I actually teach this case oh. as kind of the capstone uh, to my medical students, mm-hmm. um, kind of at the end of their four years. This is, I think, is as complicated a case as they will ever hear about. So it's kind of a good way to wrap up their four years of ethics education, I think. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I like complicated. Okay. All right. So you ready? I'm ready. All right. So we had a. F- 42-year-old patient come in, uh, and she was 22 weeks pregnant. So uh, already starting off with uh, ethics cases that involve pregnant patients generally don't. um, They're not common, but they're never fun. Yeah. So she was, uh, she presented at 22 weeks. And she was being followed by the maternal fetal medicine or the high-risk OB team. Mm -hmm. And she had complaints of abdominal pain. Uh Oh, okay. So her past medical history is relevant or, you know, in her past medical history, she has had, this is her fifth cycle of in vitro fertilization that she underwent. Mm -hmm. So this, there were four previous cycles. And three of those resulted in spontaneous miscarriages. And uh, the other one did not result in implantation. Okay. Uh, Abdominal ultrasound showed that the fetuses seem to be developing normally. And let's see what else is important. Oh, patient has no other children. She's married. 
her husband is at bedside. And she also has a past medical history of significant, and I'll put that in scare quotes, significant anxiety. Mm -hmm. And she's been under the care of a psychiatrist and psychologist for a long time, okay. years, maybe decades. Okay. Okay. So far, so good. Well, no, it sounds awful. As somebody who was also um, older, having children, it's that's tough. But so far, yeah. no ethics discussion yet. Correct. Okay. So she came to the hospital with her husband. Uh, they've been married for 18 years, apparently. And it was described to us that the patient's husband was consistently interrupting and answering questions that were directed to the patient. Hmm. So kind of interposing himself in a way that some of the nursing staff uh, were, or care, care team were a little bit uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. He is very interested in, in all of the medical information, all of the thoughts, impressions, data, very much taking notes and, and being heavily involved in the, the treatment of his wife. There is some concern raised by the staff or the team um, about the patient expressing some uh, what were what were described to us as being unusual uh, concerns about the patient about the patient herself, her own health, as well as the health of the fetuses. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we get this like hearsay, you know, a, a nurse overhears something or something's taken out of context. And so you have to take that with a bit of a, you know, grain of salt. Mm-hmm. Some of the things that were being raised are like, she was very concerned about maintaining magnesium supplements, like dietary supplements, mm-hmm. and um, kind of fixating on on that for some interesting reason. So, So we're worried. So there's sort of a worry here that she's fixating on the wrong things or that she gets fixated on things that seem sort of incidental to why she's in the hospital? Yeah, a little bit. And it's just kind of painting this picture of her being focused on on issues that don't really have anything to do with why she's in the hospital, nor necessarily her pregnancy. And then this husband who was either described as being very uh, engaged and a fierce advocate of his wife or being uh, overbearing and, and difficult. Okay. okay. So initial workup of the her complaint of pain, um, it was determined that this pain was not uh, normal for her pregnancy, right? So something else is going on. Mm-hmm. And they did more ultrasounds and, and additional scans and found that she had uh, four unidentified masses in her abdomen wow. uh, suspected to be cancerous. Okay. So it's unclear at this point the extent of, or even the type of the cancer, but the team is fairly confident that the, what they're seeing on scans is definitely cancerous. Mm-hmm. So the team's considering whether, so at this point, the team was considering whether or not she should undergo invasive biopsy in order to definitively identify and also type the cancer to, in order to have some sort of idea of exact diagnosis and then prognosis as well. And she doesn't the, want that, right? Uh, I mean, I don't want to jump ahead, but this I'm, yeah. I'm nervous, right? She's pregnant and 22 weeks is not far enough along. Right. 22 weeks is not far enough along. And she has this reported history of um, serious anxiety. So the husband 
is very concerned about um, the possibility of cancer, like even just the specter of cancer, sending his wife kind of over the edge um, as far as her mental health is uh, goes. Right, right. So, so he approaches the team and says, hey, is it possible to not tell her about the concerns about cancer? Ooh. Oh, no, that's, oh, uh, I can, yep, this is a good case. Okay, it jumped right in. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes we, we get cases and we predict, you kind of guess where they're going to go. Mm -hmm. uh, this is not one of them. Okay. You think you think you know where this oh, is going? Oh, wow, okay, okay. Uh, I'm on the edge of my seat. Yeah, so he, so he, he insists and he kind of corners or approaches the team uh, in the hallway and, and out of the earshot of his wife and insists that she not be told that there are concerns about cancer, not tell her about the diagnostic tests, tests or any type of potential treatments. Oh, that's going to be hard to keep from her. Um, and of course, because people are already concerned that he's a little paternalistic with her, that he's maybe mm -hmm. overbearing. Like, is this him interceding in a way that's going to overrule her autonomy about her own body? Or is this a a husband who knows his wife so well that he and understands her anxiety so well that he knows what's best for her and any mention of those things would potentially um, exacerbate kind of an, an anxiety that she already holds yeah okay so i'm already concerned <laughs> okay so she so she's admitted at this point and they're they're trying to do work up trying to figure out what's going on he makes this request and he is making this request in a way that what was really fascinating kind of in retrospect about this case is that the way the husband's behavior was painted in very different pictures. Mm -hmm. So so some some members of the team thought he was, like I said earlier, a, a fierce advocate for his wife and, and doing everything that a husband ought to do. Mm -hmm. Others saw him as being very paternalistic, potentially abusive and oh, wow. um, taking taking control where it's not his place to, to, uh, to, to take control. And there, and as a result, the team was pretty split about whether or not they should, uh, kind of honor his request because he was painting it in, in light of doing what's in the best interest of his, not only his wife, but also his unborn children. And also that, um, and the other t part of the team was, almost dismissed it out of hand said of course not there's no way that we would do this we she has to know to the point where there was some talk from some members of the team who basically said you can decide to not tell her but if i'm on service i'm gonna tell her regardless oh, wow. of what the team's quote-unquote decision is going to be wow okay so they're very split there and they have very strong opinions can you quickly say circumstances in which you think it would ever be appropriate not to disclose a patient's diagnosis or even sort of investigation of that diagnosis mm -hmm. to to the patient themselves yeah yeah it, it's it's a really unusual set of circumstances right, right. and in in my experience the only situation that i've seen is in a situation like this where it's a patient who has significant anxiety and some sort of like long history of documented um maybe it's like uh self-harm 
um, suicide attempts possibly, mm -hmm. but generally in the mental health psychiatric realm area. And it is when the, the disclosure of that information or, or engaging the patient in the informed consent process or the conversations about informed consent would actually cause more harm to the patient mm -hmm. or additional avoidable harm. And so I, in the literature, they talk about um, the therapeutic privilege, which doesn't mm -hmm. shed any light on it. But basically, it's that idea that the there are times in which the, the process of talking about all of the diagnostic and um, medical information would actually cause harm to the patient. Yeah, I've heard of that too. I've actually never... Um had a case where that was strong enough to me to actually agree that it was okay to not disclose. Um, so I think it has to be pretty unusual circumstances to say it would be so much worse for this patient to know the truth because studies sort of bear out that even anxious people, even people with psychiatric illness or mental health challenges generally do benefit from understanding their medical condition. Um, the other two I can think of would be, right, if a patient told us, I don't want to know, Right mm -hmm. then, and then yeah. we, we don't force information. And every now and again, you'll get um, a family who comes from a culture which doesn't think that it's appropriate to disclose, especially a cancer diagnosis, about um, the family member that it's um, tantamount to sort of ensuring that it will happen, that something bad will mm. happen from it by disclosing it. And every now and again, you'll get um, sort of that cultural difference where the family advocates for not telling the patient about their diagnosis and that it really needs to come either from the family themselves or be totally kept from the patient. Um, that's not very common, but that can be also a difficult situation in which you're not sure that you might be convinced that this is a cultural tradition, but you're not necessarily convinced it's what the patient would have wanted. Right. Yep. Yeah. Both of those situations uh, that you described are very unusual, but when they do come up, it, it does give everyone pause, I think, to mm -hmm. be like, you know, maybe, maybe there is room for, for this, um, you know, this request to be honored. So, you know, progressing over the next several days, the patient, the the patient, the pregnant patient is, it's, remains in the hospital. She is increasingly described as being withdrawn, less engaged in decision-making, um, not sometimes not answering questions when mm -hmm. posed directly to her. And, the husband is becoming more assertive and more um, engaged. And so they're, so she is kind of falling back into herself, like re um, receding a little bit. And mm -hmm. he is trying to fill that, um, uh, that role in, in, in decision-making. And it, eventually, although we weren't involved in this decision, and there's a couple of decisions that are made kind of over the course of this case that uh, the ethics consultants were, um, I would say strongly recommending against, but mm -hmm. I, again, we are at least the view that I, that I take is that we're consult consultants and we provide our best inf recommendations. And it's actually the people, the other folks on the team who have to decide which direction to take. So, mm -hmm. which can be complicated and, and hard in different ways, but the decision was made that they were going to do as much diagnostic, uh, testing as they can as they could to try to figure out exactly what the cancer was and during this time they were being a little bit vague and avoiding direct questions although she wasn't questioning um providing the patient the the information about what was going on again i don't think that that's necessarily the 
the the right answer or the best answer at that situation but again it's not something that we were heavily we weren't involved with at that point so they're kind of trying to do it with halfway that they're not explicitly not telling mm-hmm. her but they're also not directly telling her anything and because she's not asking it's pretty easy to just be vague about things yeah exactly yeah, it's kind yeah. of the try trying to uh, go along to get along without without making a definitive answer which mm-hmm. sometimes that's the best approach but sometimes it's just kind of uh i don't know trying to have your cake and eat it too i guess right right yeah sometimes it sometimes comp- i would say often as an ethicist compromise is the best solution but in this case i'm not sure that it is it's not mm. really even a compromise it's just not really doing anything yeah it's just kind of uh, avoiding it so mm-hmm. so okay. the diagnostic procedures that were done uh indicated that she had she has a, an aggressive form of ovarian cancer. They're not sure exactly how far progressed it is, but based upon the fact that of her symptoms and, and kind of the way it seems to be, I don't know, situated or growing or whatever, that it's not only a serious aggressive form, but it is uh, to the point where aggressive treatment is the only curative approach that is possible. Oh, wow. And of course, she's 22 weeks pregnant and any treatment is going to harm the fetus. Right. And they and the, the oncologists who were involved with this predicted that aggressive treatment would not only have a negative impact on the, the fetuses, but would likely result in the, the loss of the pregnancy. Yeah. And 22 weeks is right on the cusp of some hospitals will deliver children at 22 weeks. It's really right on that cusp of viability. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's probably for most hospitals too early to even attempt to deliver those, those babies. Right. Oof. Yeah. And so the, the hospital where this was taking place, it was, a you know, a, a high level, you know, one of the best hospitals, uh, in the world. And so 22 weeks was at the, at the edge of what they were able to, um, handle, which is like, like you said, that's as young as almost any um survive survivability um is so what they uh so this was information was given to the the husband who obviously um you know took this very hard and then over the next day or so other members of the team the, the nursing staff or other folks um had conversations with him about kind of what to do and how terrible this is and how much they wanted these babies. And they'd gone through all the time and expense and resources to do these multiple rounds of IVF because they wanted this family. And he confided to one of the members of the team that he said, and this is the quote that that was documented, that if I had to choose, I would rather lose my life, my wife than the babies. Wow. That's, um, a disturbing I, there's no right answer to that question but to offer that up um is a pretty hard reality and then i'm a little worried about how he's going to make decisions moving forward and if that's what she would want right right and that was you know she is kind of uh you know almost a, a secondary character mm-hmm. as this case uh, progresses because there's the there's the babies um, there's the husband and her interests are really kind of 
law be being subsumed by these other interests. Mm -hmm. And so really, um, and having somebody say that, um, was shocking, I think, to, to many members of the team and completely, uh, fed into some of the negative, uh, perceptions of the husband that were, that were floating around in the team. And, um, but also again, the other view was that this is a man who's prioritizing his his family and mm-hmm. and maybe it is what the the wife would have the patient would have wanted and so a lot of uh emotional um distress going on with this this I, request and this statement yeah i i was just having a conversation with a friend and i will actually not disclose her name because i think that this is a controversial statement but we were talking about this exact scenario and like at what point even after your child is born you feel so connected that you'd rather lose your life than theirs and I think that there's like this movie perception like there's all these movies and tv shows where women are like save my child's life not my life and I just don't know in real life how many women would ever actually choose that um you kind of there's a strong pull to preserve your own life even after the child is born I think at some point so my friend was saying it really wasn't until like two months old where I was like Oh yes, I would lose my life for this child if I had to. Oh, interesting. Right. So huh. it wasn't even it was not even like immediate. It was like, yeah, I mean they're kind of blobby for the first couple months and re- it wasn't really till they made <laughs> eye contact that I felt that way. <laughs> That's interesting. I uh I I've been asked kind of tongue in cheek by by students mostly when I think that personhood or legal status or moral status applies to children and my answer is always not before the age of 18 (laughs) (laughs) then they become real real persons but okay so at this point the husband is has has said these things that are troubling to some members of the team Mm -hmm. the wife the patient continues to be more lethargic less engaged and it gets to the point where the oncology recommendations are we either need to go in and definitively treat this cancer mm-hmm. um, at, at the risk of, of losing with the expectation of losing the pregnancy or uh, th- there's not going to be an option anymore. Basically, so we're, at, we're at a point. There's a window here because if they don't start immediately, then there's no hope of it actually working. Right. And and then we we got into these interesting conversations of, of weighing two potential lives versus one life, right? And that's mm-hmm. what the husband is trying to weigh. Mm-hmm. Well, that's an impossible decision, of course, but it's one I think only this patient can make. And even if yeah. she's anxious, I at this point, I can't leave her out of this conversation, or at least that's what my gut is saying at this moment. Yeah. And it it was unclear whether it was based upon maybe a, an exacerbation of her psychiatric mental health issues, but she became increasingly, increasingly withdrawn. Um, not not engaging with self-care, not speaking to staff, basically just um, lying in her bed, curtains drawn, lights off, um, really kind of in a, in a bad space. And the although this was, uh, again, like a, a not an easy or uncontroversial decision, the dis- it, it, it was made and the plan was made that we are going to um, try to 
allow the pregnancy to progress as long as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. And so it was actually about two, two and a half weeks. So now the patients, the fetuses are at like 27-ish weeks. Oh, okay. This makes a big difference. Yeah. So now now past that point of where, where viability was kind of um, in question. And and at this point, the oncology folks are like, you know what, we, we are kind of past the point where we think that we can do much because of the, you know, they're continuing to do scans and, and mm-hmm. you know, whatever diagnostics they're doing. And so the plan was made that they were going to keep the patient in the medical ICU, which is, you know, an adult ICU with an emergency C-section cart or crash cart or whatever that, you know, the the material necessary to do an emergency C-section in the room, in the medical ICU. Oh my which, goodness. Which, which isn't, you know, is, isn't done, isn't the case. Right. And there would be on-call, the NICU, the OB folks would kind of co-manage this patient in the, in the medical ICU until for as long as possible until the, the patient, um, the, the patient delivers the babies, which was what the husband had been wanting for, um, from the, from the, from the beginning, from the time that this question was, was posed, was raised. So, so at this point, sorry, just so I'm clear. Um, so we've, it, it was it just that diagnosing her and getting to the point where we really had to make decisions took so long that by the time there was a real decision to be made. It had already been made because there was nothing more they thought they could do. Is that the case? Yeah. And also there was some concern that if the patient wasn't 100% for cancer curative treatment, the husband wasn't 100% on board, that without full buy-in from everybody, then it wouldn't, the the likelihood of success was much lower. I see. And so- yeah. And so the the thought was that we, unless everybody is a hundred percent on board moving forward, then that might not be the best um, approach. Again, not an uncontroversial decision no. by, by the team. <laughs> uh, so at, at this point we're, you know, 27 ish weeks pregnancy, the patient continues to decline to the point that she's not um, capable of engaging in any of the decision-making anymore. And during uh, the middle of the 27th week, there's indications that the the fetuses are are in distress, mm-hmm. and there was an emergency C-section done in the uh, in the medical ICU. So they called, you know, not code blue, but basically a, a code. The OB folks, the NICU folks, all come down to the the IC the med, adult ICU, and they perform this uh, emergency C-section. In, in the ICU. Again, not something that I've ever heard of before. Me neither. That sounds incredible. Also, so does she consent to that? Have we ever asked her? I'm like still kind of concerned about this. Yeah. Um, short answer is she did not. Oh my gosh. Wow. Yeah. So pretty much from the time that she got in, in into the hospital system and we kind of had an idea what was going on, her voice was really lost in this case. Wow. And um, her husband's voice was the one that was directing the treatment plan. Okay, so we're in All a right. Game of Thrones situation, but it sounds like maybe <laughs> there's more. Oh, that's right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so so that was um, 
so the two there was a, a baby boy and a baby girl both uh born by c-section both uh needed immediate and extensive NICU level treatment to survive uh unfortunately one of the uh within the first couple of hours uh the baby girl or the baby boy uh died mm. I did not survive had significant um respiratory his lungs weren't fully full as developed as they needed to be and had profound neurological injury and then um were unable to to save that the child okay the the baby girl was a little bit more robust and was able to be transferred immediately to the NICU where she uh, was treated for a number of uh you know for a number of different medical issues Interestingly, and very sadly, the mother, uh, the patient um, did not survive the emergency C-section that she wow. she hemorrhaged and um, they're unable to save her. Mm. Oh, also a, interesting. That's a, that's a <laughs> so this is terrible. Is this is this the end? Can we stop talking now or is there more to the case? Uh, it gets worse. No, it can't get possible. worse. Oh, <laughs> yeah. It's the one of the interesting parts in retrospect about this was there. There were so many. It seemed like there were so many possibilities or so many points along the the path in which we could have maybe not avoided the the outcome because it, it's possible that the 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 physiology and the medicine and then the the illnesses of of everyone involved was was the patients weren't able to be saved mm -hmm. um but in doing this the case progressing in the way that this did it really added a lot of um suffering and emotional distress on the team mm -hmm. and yeah. the the and maybe it could have been avoided if if there was uh, I don't know, different decisions being made. So I want to know, Tyler, what you think what those points are. And maybe you're getting there and I'm jumping the gun here, but mm. no, it's fine. I, I think it's, I, I'd love to hear, right? So if, if um, I, I'm worried that she's so withdrawn because she knows something really bad is going on and no one's being upfront with her about it, like this might have mm. actually exacerbated that rather than being us protecting her. So I wonder if we had been more straightforward at the beginning of this case, she would have been able to participate. And even if the outcome was the same, you still would have felt like this was her choice to make mm -hmm. that decision, to make that sacrifice, to try for this. Um, the team might have felt, even though it would have still been devastating and needed a lot of you know, support, if it had been her choice that might have made people feel a little bit less uneasy about it, um, maybe there's points in there were different what other kind of different decisions do you think could have or should have been made yeah i think i i think that's the big one that mm -hmm. when we have these really hard tragic cases sometimes the the only thing that we can take comfort in is that we've gone through a, an appropriate process mm -hmm. right that there that there's been safeguards and and the right people are making the right decisions with the right information and this was a case in which we were we we almost you know except in retrospect we didn't ever have enough information in which to make the best decision and the the people who were making the decision 
we we were really kind of suspicious of their motives and and whether they were acting on in the best interest of the patient and what the patient's preference would have be would have been and I I think that what you're what you're hinting at is that this case could have been painted in a completely different light if it would have been kind of a noble sacrifice that this mother made for her unborn children, right? Mm -hmm. If she was the the one making the decision and she was empowered and had the information. And if it was a an act of self-sacrifice, almost like, you know, almost like in a movie, then it would have been a lot less um I think difficult um emotionally and, and professionally, but just wasn't the case. And and the husband even in retrospect, like, I don't know that he wasn't actually trying to do the best that he he could for his wife, right? He didn't necessarily, uh, you know, some people read him in one way, some people read him in a completely um, malicious way, but um, it's so hard. And I, I think the reason I like to teach this, use this case in teaching is because it highlights the difficulty in surrogate decision making or making decisions for other people mm -hmm. and what information do we need what information do people um uh need to weigh against others and, and kind of what our interests are mm -hmm. um yeah what would I think you this case haunts... go ahead sorry what would you have liked to hear from him so if you had had the chance to sit him down and say i need you to tell me about your wife and about the decisions that you're about to make like let's talk about the hard choices that are coming up, what would have you want? What would you have wanted to hear from him that would have swayed you either to say he really is acting in her best interest and we need to trust him, or mm -hmm. um, he is he he has this conflict that's making it hard for him to make good decisions and we really need to not trust him when he says don't tell her. Is there something that you right. would have wanted to hear? I think some information about you know whether or not they had had similar discussions in the mm -hmm. past, right? If he were to come to the the table and say, "We talked about this, and we think that for X, Y, or Z reasons, having children is, I don't know, it could be couched in religious language, is like the highest good, the most noble calling, all of this type of um, that type of language, right? Mm -hmm. it, if there was some clear indication that they had discussed this and this was aligned with her preferences i think that would have helped mm -hmm. i think if he wasn't so um and, and again this is this is an issue of presentation not information mm -hmm. right and so if he wouldn't have been such a jerk right if he wouldn't have been so condescending and rude and dismissive of mostly uh honestly mostly female nursing staff mm -hmm. and and if he would have been um better able to engage in respectful and conversation then maybe he wouldn't have been um viewed in the light that he was and and which which called into question kind of a lot of his other decisions that he was making as well right mm-hmm yeah, I mean, it can really, so we all have these biases and certain people trigger them in us, right? So, you know, that mm -hmm. kind of, I also, I imagine might have been put off by a kind of condescension toward me if I had had that kind of interaction with him. And I might have been more suspicious that he was really, you know, not acting in his wife's best interest or in align with her 
reasoning if he just seemed very misogynistic. I can see that mm -hmm. influencing, and I would have had to really check myself to make sure that I wasn't being influenced by that sort of perception of him if that's one that I held. Yeah, and that's exactly kind of how this played out, mm -hmm. is that he was kind of living up to all of the the stereotypes that trigger people, you know, about domestic violence, about abuse, about overbearingness, and all of these um, other things that, like like you said, trigger us all in different ways. And yeah. So what did you what did you do? Well, tell tell me why it haunts you, but also was there anything to be done with the hospital staff, one thing that we do as ethicists is when there are really hard cases like this and there's a lot of moral distress or emotional distress about what happened, part of our role sometimes can be to debrief with staff, to talk about what went right, what went wrong, and see if we can help alleviate some of that distress. I, you can't totally because no matter if this, even if this was a perfect case, that outcome is horrible and it's, it's going to be emotionally distressing. But was there other ways you might have been able to alleviate the moral distress? And maybe you can tell us what you think the difference is between emotional distress and moral distress. Yeah. Um, so what we did after the fact is we had many meetings with various members of the team, various teams who were involved to, to do exactly that, to do some some debriefing after the fact and some processing, not just like what went wrong and how do we make this a better case, you know, clinically, like, how do we improve the care that was provided, but also emotionally, and how do we process this? The, I mean, the difference between emotional distress and moral distress, the, the I think, I don't know. I mean, it, it's published in the literature, right? I mean, there are definitions, <laughs> and I, I find them almost wholly unsatisfying. Oh, okay. <laughs> the difference. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm happy if if you're able to explain to me in a way that 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 makes sense but the 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 classic definition of moral distress is is a, an individual who knows what the right thing to do is and is being uh prohibited or blocked from doing what they know the right thing to be, to do is and then the the emotional response to that feeling of being thwarted in doing the right thing right is that how you understand moral distress? So sometimes we can relieve moral distress because we think we know what the right thing to do is and we just can't do it. And and sometimes that's right. And then we can talk about, you know, what would have empowered you to do the right thing? Or we can say, you know, I understand why you thought that was the right thing, but let me help explain why it didn't happen and maybe it actually wouldn't have been the right thing to do. Whereas the emotional distress is just, this was a hard case and people died in a really tragic way. And as a clinical ethicist, there's nothing I can do to like make you not feel bad about that. And actually, I think it'd be pretty weird if my goal was to try to alleviate the distress of a tragedy happening. I mean, I can, I think talking it out and getting counseling for that is really important. Probably not my role as a clinical ethicist. Yeah. And there, and there are teams in, in some hospitals that are trained to do that. Right? Mm -hmm. So one of the hospitals that we work with in this area has a dedicated team that's the acronym is CISM, C-I-S-M, but that stands for critical incident stress management. And it, it's a group of individuals who've been trained to go in and do um, kind of diffusing of these uh, situations. And we work really closely with them and they're a great team. Cool. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, that's what we did more but for better, or for worse. I don't know how effective those are in, in 
individual kind of settings with these types of cases. But um, yeah, this is a case that I thought that was ethically really complicated, but also was exacerbated by the the players in it. And so mm -hmm. I, I don't think that we did the right thing. I'm not sure what the right thing necessarily would have been in, at any of those decision points. But yeah, this is one that when I'm at a cocktail party and someone's like, what do you, what is the point of an ethicist? Like, what do you do? Like go to the hospital and tell people what to do and like unplug a ventilator. I'm like, no, let, let me, let me, let me paint you a picture of this situation. Mm -hmm. so. I like that your go-to case is one in which you still have no idea what the right thing to do was, and you definitely didn't do it. So yeah, here's what I do as a clinical <laughs> ethicist. I like, who knows, right? Like who, Let's scratch that. Here's what I do as a clinical ethicist. I think about really hard things and I don't always solve them. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's that famous uh, quote. I don't, I think it's attributed to Nietzsche, but it says that, and people have described ethicists, clinical ethicists in this way, that we, we muddy the waters to give the impression of depth, mm. <laughs> the illusion of depth. <laughs> so I think that's fair in some situations. Mm. Well, thanks, Tyler, for sharing that case. I think it's, you know, yeah. we, we probably both have a million cases that we could talk about, but there are only maybe a few or a handful that really stick with you like that. Yeah. Thankfully, otherwise this job would be unsustainable, right? That's right. It's good that our minds sort of erase things after a while. Yeah. You know what? Here's an idea for next season. Okay. We do all of the, we do a bunch of cases in which things went really well. And the ethicist <laughs> is the hero. I like that. The hero, hero clinical ethicist. That'll be a good compendium to this um, haunting cases in which uh, they're very sad and very hard to hear. Thanks for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. For more information about the podcast and your wonderful hosts, please visit us at bioethicsforthepeople.com. And special thanks to Darian Golden-Stahl for all the podcast-related artwork, Christopher Wright for composing and recording all the music you've heard here, and Cameron Swayze for audio engineering support. Mm -hmm.